All right, well, it's a joy to be back together tonight. I'm studying the book of Philippians. And um, in our study so far, we've seen that Paul wrote this letter to refocus this church on Christ's mission, right? We've seen that. He's writing to encourage them to keep, keep after knowing Christ and making Christ known in that city of Philippi. And uh, much like us today, this church was facing threats on multiple fronts. We've talked about that a lot. Uh, threats that would distract them from Christ. Threats that would undermine their confidence in the gospel. And uh, quite possibly one of the most sinister threats and one of the most deadly to the church is the threat that we identified last time that we were together. And uh, it was the threat of legalism. Do you remember that? Kind of? Yeah? Vaguely? I know we didn't meet last week, but it was only two weeks ago, all right? The threat of legalism. And what was that, right? What was legalism? How do we define that? Well, it's, we could say it in a number of ways, but it's really just any attempt to earn God's favor through performance, right? Any attempt to earn God's favor. It's thinking that I can get into God's family by my obedience. Or maybe thinking that I can stay in God's family by my obedience. And in this case, in Philippi, it, it came from a group called the Judaizers. Remember them? You say, yes, Clay, we remember them. We talked a lot about circumcision last time. Uh, well, these folks taught that salvation was on the one hand by faith in Jesus. Yeah, sounds good but not only Jesus, right? Remember? It was, it was faith in Christ plus something else. Faith in Christ plus obedience. Or in this case, shorthand, plus circumcision. Obedience to the Mosaic law. And not Jesus alone. So they would say, Jesus died for us. Yes, He died for our transgressions. But when it comes to being righteous, to actually becoming righteous before the Lord, and being fully accepted by the Lord, Fully entering into his covenant people, well, that's on us. That's completed through, especially as Gentiles, submit to circumcision and the law of Moses. That's what they taught. See Acts 15 on that. We looked at that last week. We won't go back there. Well, Paul describes this legalistic tendency in another way at the end of verse 3. And we're just going to kind of pick up here. He calls it putting confidence in the flesh. Do you see that? End of verse 3. He says, Christians, we don't, we don't put any confidence in the flesh. And what does he mean by that? The flesh. What is, what is he talking about here? It's another way of referring to ourselves as humans. Okay? The flesh can have lots of different meanings in Scripture, so the context kind of has to determine what, what Paul's saying here. And the flesh in this context is talking about our uh, another way of referring to ourselves as humans. So Paul's talking about a self-reliance. Okay? A self-reliance. Trusting in ourselves in one way or another. Or we might say it's measuring our value by something that we've done. It's getting our identity wrapped up in some human achievement. Bragging about that achievement when we get it. Or envying others who get it when we wish we had it. 
to use the language that's so common today, it's believing in ourselves, right? We're great. Esteeming ourselves. We can do it. Now, I took a, a walk around Liberty's campus uh, with the family the other day. Saw a couple of you there. Uh, it was super fun. Um, but as we were walking around, I, we went to this overlook. The kids always like to look at the, what we found out were fake swans in the, what do you call it, the pond, uh, in the library pond. So, you know, I'm with the kids, and, and I, I walk up on that, like, platform thing, and I see this yellow circular object, and it's, like, sitting on the railing. That's odd. So I walk over there, and it's a yellow rock. It's, like, spray-painted yellow. I'm like, it's even weirder. So I look down at it, and it says, you rock. And I thought, okay, clever. You know, I instantly felt better about myself. So thank you for that, for that self-esteem message there. <laughs> but that's the idea of putting confidence in the flesh, isn't it? It's self-reliance. But here in, in verse 3, Paul says that Christians don't do that. That's not something we do. Instead, he says, verse 3, we glory in Christ Jesus. We don't glory in ourselves, we glory in Him. And we put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in ourselves. You see, Paul knows that we're constantly tempted to put confidence in ourselves. Right? Confidence in the flesh. We're lured toward trusting ourselves, whether as unbelievers we're completely enslaved to it, and even as believers we're tempted And we slowly start thinking, even as believers, that God loves us a little bit more because of what we've done or not done. Or we think that we're a little more important than others because of what we've achieved. We might subtly start to believe that the things we do give us some kind of extra intrinsic value. Something to brag a little bit about. Something to offer to God as a reason for Him to receive us, some privilege. And we may even begin to build our lives around gaining these things because we sense that they have surpassing value. But Paul wants us to adopt a totally different way of thinking. When it comes to our standing with God, when it comes to our righteousness before Him, our value... He wants us to have crystal clarity. We have absolutely no righteousness in ourselves. None. And He wants us to see that all our attempts to obey, all our attempts to earn God's favor, they actually work against us and not for us. They are a liability, not an asset. They fuel our pride and our self-reliance. And Paul wants us to see these, these works in this light for one particular reason. So that we'll repudiate them. We'll cast them aside. So that we'll come to Him empty-handed. And that's for another reason. So that we can truly embrace Christ. So that we can receive a far greater righteousness, one that He has already earned for us, a pristine righteousness, 
a righteousness that comes from God Himself that's never been defiled or tarnished, a righteousness that He clothes us with free of charge, and a righteousness that the Father sees us through from now on. It's the great exchange, that's what I'm calling it. Repudiating self for relationship with Christ. And when we come, kind of giving up our works, the best part of this is that we enter into the most intimate, the most life-giving relationship, a relationship with the very Son of God. A relationship characterized by communion with Him. Characterized by real transformation right now in this life in a relationship that brings with it the hope of the resurrection from the dead. So there's a lot at stake, a lot riding on this exchange, and no one knows this great exchange better than the Apostle Paul. This great exchange from dead works to relationship with Christ. So in the passage in front of us tonight, Paul's going to tell us how he made the exchange and why he made it. Okay? How he made it and why he made it. Paul used to have a lot of confidence in the flesh. But when his eyes were opened to Christ, it totally exposed him. And so he traded all that in for something far superior. And as he tells us his story, he's telling it to us for a reason, like we've seen. Paul's constantly offering models in Philippians, right? We've seen that again and again. And this is no different. Paul models for us the perspective that he wants us to have. The perspective that will fuel our joy in Christ. Remember back in verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. This perspective is going to fuel that joy. This perspective is also going to keep us safe from those temptations of legalism. Verse 2, remember the beware of the dogs. Beware of these. This perspective that Paul's modeling for us keeps us safe from temptations to legalism. He wants us to see the worthlessness of our own achievement before the Lord. It's way, you're way worse than you think you are. Your achievements are puny compared to what they need to be. So he wants us to see that. But he also wants to see the glory of Christ's achievement. The achievement that we've already benefited from if we're believers, that we've received in full by faith, and to learn to live by that each day. And if we adopt this way of thinking, our hearts are going to sing for joy, we're going to be content, will be guarded from those dangers of legalism that Paul spelled out for us the last time we were together. So, let's just read the text, and then I'll, I'll uh, kind of break it down for you. We'll begin in verse 1 here. We'll take the whole, we'll, all the way, we'll read from verse 1 to verse 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Because we are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's where we're picking up tonight. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here's some examples. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. 
But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, or because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now he's going to go on to say, it's progressive, right? I haven't already attained this. And then he's going to, verse 15, call us to to think this way. In other words, adopt this perspective that I have. So he's clearly putting himself forward to us as a model, something he wants us to follow, a way of thinking he wants us to adopt. Now, as you read these verses, and we read them together, you probably noticed a lot of repetition. Do you notice that? Like there's loss and gain, repetition, you know. And it seems kind of like cycling back and forth, saying a lot of the same things. Well, there's a lot of repetition. That's, that's true. But a better word for this would be escalation. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, he says it simply in the beginning. And then he, and then he builds on what he just said. He says it again but he says it in a more expanded way. And then finally, a third time, he says it again in a far more expansive way. So the idea is it's escalating. He's ratcheting things up as he repeats himself. And he's doing it to show us both the the dangers of trusting in ourselves and the glory of Christ and simplicity of trusting Him. And tonight we're going to look at at these stages um, of his argument here in in this Chapter is the best way I could frame it up. If I had more time, I could probably do it in a clearer way. But that's what, we're, that's what we've got, okay? Um, we're looking at these three stages, and we're going to see he, he ratchets these things up. We'll spend a little bit of time in stage one, a little bit of time in stage two, and really kind of blow out stage three. And most of our application will be kind of in that last stage. So in that first stage, we got this thing on. Yes. In this first stage, beginning in verse 4, Paul lists out his former privileges in Judaism. And then he says that now, in light of Christ, he's seen these gains for what they really are. As losses, he says. So we could say it like this. In this first stage of his argument, he has reckoned his former gains in Judaism as losses compared to Christ. Okay? Okay? He's kind of calculated what he once thought was a gain, like in the gain column, an asset. All of these things he listed out, he thought those were gains, but he now sees them as a loss, as a deficit compared to Christ or because of Christ. So verse 4 He spells out these reasons here, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. 
If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel, and he goes on to list some of those. But, he says in verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he's reckoning these former gains as losses. And he, and he starts this, this first stage with a pretty dramatic buildup, right? It's almost shocking. Because he, he said, he just said, in verse 3, the Christians don't do what he just did. Right? Christians don't boast in the flesh. Then he goes on to boast in his former privileges and achievements in Judaism. But why does he do that? What's, it, what's going on? Well, he does it for a couple reasons. All right, initially, he's demonstrating that he had more reasons to boast from a human perspective, from a human standpoint, than any other Jew, including the Judaizers that were tempting this congregation. Okay, we tracking? He's essentially saying something like this. Oh, they value circumcision? They're telling you to, yep, yep. Oh, I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like Leviticus commands. I'm an ethnic Israelite. Even more, I can trace my lineage to one of the most prestigious tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. In fact, I am pure-blooded. I'm top-of-the-line Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And when it comes to devotion to Moses and to his law, like they're telling you, I am the, I'm of the strictest party, most literal party. I'm of the party of the Pharisees. Okay, We take every word, inspired, literal, we know it's going to happen. I was so zealous for the law and the rabbinic traditions that I chased down, imprisoned, and executed anyone who dared to violate the law. And that was the church, right? Because they were saying that this Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled the law of Moses. And in summary, summary statement, I was blameless according to the law of Moses. Meaning, I structured my entire life, my whole existence, around keeping the law. So at a minimum, at a minimum, he's making the point that he has more to boast in than even the Judaizers themselves. But there's more. He lists his pedigree to heighten the effect of what he says next in verse 7. He says, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, he grabs all of, those, all of that, those things he said in one little clause here. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss. It's like Paul just took us on a tour through his executive office as this business tycoon, right? And he's showing us all of his various diplomas on the wall from these Ivy League institutions and business schools, cost him thousands of dollars to accrue, all the awards that he had received from various companies and and even maybe even signed letters from U.S. presidents because of what, he, what he's achieved and how many donations he's given. Nobel Peace Prizes littering his bookshelves. And he's taking us through, and he says, you see all this? Something's changed, and I don't, I don't value these anymore. These are actually worthless. I used to take pride in this. They were, in fact, my most precious human achievements. I used to boast in them, but now I see them as worthless. So when Paul took us through his privileges and achievements, he did it to heighten the impact of verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Why? For the sake of, literally, because 
of new information because of Christ. He has reevaluated his life in light of the Messiah. And that's the idea. His entire outlook on what is valuable for righteousness has changed. Because of Christ, as we're going to see in a minute, because of the superior righteousness that he earned, it makes our woeful attempts at righteousness look like what they really are. Like Isaiah says in Isaiah 64.6, like filthy rags. So when it comes to your life, have you had this same kind of reckoning? Do you realize that before you understood what Christ accomplished for you, that any of your attempts to make God happy with you, any attempts to get on His good side, any attempts to make Him less angry with you, any soup kitchens you volunteered for, any nonprofits you worked at, any prayers you prayed, any aisles you walked, any tears you cried, any baptisms you took, any remorse you showed for sin, do you realize that none of that gets you any righteousness before God. So Paul is modeling for us here that we should think back to our own story and re-evaluate. We should count any of those attempts, human attempts, as a loss because of what Christ has accomplished for us. But he doesn't stop there in this first stage with just reevaluating his former privileges and achievements in Judaism. He doesn't stop with a decision he's made in the past to reckon these things as, as losses. But notice now in stage two, he goes beyond this. And he says he continuously counts everything as loss compared to the value of knowing Christ. We could say it like this. He continues to reckon everything is lost compared to knowing Christ. And I tried to italicize some of the, the escalation here. He continues to do this. He continues to make this, this choice. And it's not just with Judaism, it's with everything. And you see this transition. He draws attention to it. In verse 8, he says, Indeed, and I'm about to heighten this, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So, we're just noticing here how Paul widened the scope to anything and everything that tempts him to find acceptance with God that's based on something he does or doesn't do. You see that? It's not just Judaism in his past. It's anything and everything that tempts him to find acceptance with God based on something he's done or hasn't done in the present. Anything that tempts him to boast in himself or to try to accrue righteousness before God or to get God to love him a little bit more, Anything he's tempted to identify himself with that's apart from Christ, he says it's everything, is counted as loss. He's ratcheting things up. And notice also the change in the verb tense. 
you catch that? Back in verse 7, it's past time. It says he counted. And now here in verse 8, it's present. He counts. Or continues to count. What's the significance? Why does Paul change tense form here? Paul implies that this is a daily counting, a daily choice for him, a choice that must be reinforced every morning. A choice to not depend on himself for gaining favor with God. Now that's very insightful. He's implying that we will still struggle with reverting back to our legalistic tendencies, even as believers. We'll be tempted to relate to God in our day-to-day experience outside of Christ and His righteousness. We'll be tempted to relate to Him as though our relationship depends on our performance of righteousness to maintain the relationship. So we've got to reinforce to ourselves that we are secure in Christ, as we're going to see in a moment, and that our obedience or even disobedience doesn't alter our standing before the Lord. It will alter our experience of our relationship, but it won't alter our standing before the Lord. Why is that? Well, Because we're already in Christ. And notice finally that this daily choice is motivated by the reality that our relationship with Christ is the most valuable thing we could possess. Look down in the, in the text here. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So why does Paul continually count everything as loss? Why does he refuse to boast in anything apart from Christ? Because nothing can compare to the value of knowing the risen Son personally. There's no greater aim in life. No greater privilege than communing with God incarnate. Everything in life, all our pursuits, are like individual streams that are flowing downhill, eventually joining in the valley and then making their way down to the ocean, to the ocean of this one great end of knowing God in Christ. And we'll talk more about this at the end, just pointing that out right now, that this is, Paul calls this the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, before we move on to this final stage, I just want to draw out this this point a little bit more. Let's consider something really practical here. Since we need to make this a conscious choice, we need to do this often. Uh, Since we're tempted to relate to the Lord based on our own righteousness, here's something you can try every morning. I encourage you to do this. It's something I try to do every day. I try to reestablish in my mind before the Lord in prayer that my relationship with Him depends on Jesus and not me. Right? It depends on what Jesus has done, as we're going to see in a moment, not what I have done. It's going to be a conscious choice to remind ourselves of this and, and rest in Him. I remind myself that He sees me as righteous in His Son and that He doesn't accept me based on my own shoddy righteousness. And that means then that, that I'm secure in Christ and I have open access to my Father through the Son. And that is an incredible privilege that we have. 
And I found this to be super helpful because even when I start to confess sin, I can sometimes think that my confession somehow reestablishes me in God's favor. You know what I'm talking about? You know, it's just like you've sinned in this, this way that you know is wrong, and you, you, you're coming to the Lord because you know there's been a breach in the relationship, but somehow you begin to believe this lie that, that I'm somehow out of the family, or he, he's, he's angry with me in some way that I've got to now repair. But even our confessions don't add to or take away from this righteousness that Christ earned for us. Why is that? Well, because it's Christ's righteousness, and he earned it. We're just the beneficiary. So be careful that you don't fall prey. Yes, we we, we need to confess our sin. Does that mean that that sin doesn't have any effect on the relationship? It totally has effect on the relationship. Our sin grieves the Lord. Ephesians tells us that, grieves the Spirit. And our unconfessed patterns of sin will affect our prayers. It will affect our experience of the Lord. It will bring his discipline into our lives. So our honest confession before the Lord brings that familial forgiveness, that 1 John 1, 8 through 10 kind of forgiveness. But we weren't kicked out of the family because we sinned. And we're not brought back into the family because we confessed. So when we confess our sins, we confess them securely in Christ. So this is a practical. There's a lot more we could probably talk about on that, that piece, but we'll, we'll keep moving. We've got a lot of verses to cover tonight. Um, and that leads us to our third and final stage of his argument here. And this is really the climax. Not only has Paul counted his Jewish privileges as loss, not only does he continuously consider any other thing that tempts him as loss, but now he goes so far as to say that he actively repudiates these gains. In other words, he packs all those diplomas, all those awards, all those, the, everything that he accumulated, he packs it into a box and he throws it in the dump. Why is that? Because they're contaminated. They're contaminated. They're not just valueless, that's true, but it's like they're growing mold on the backside. Okay? Those diplomas are Infested with mold. They're not just worthless, they're dangerous, and they need to go. And that's the idea in stage three. He trashes everything, he says, to receive and to know Christ. The end of verse eight. For his sake, or literally, because of whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness, of God that, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He keeps going. This is clearly Paul's most expansive paragraph where he goes into more detail with the concepts that he's already talked about. He's bringing his argument to like a climax here. And in this stage, we see why these human achievements, these self-righteous good works, are so dangerous. Because they keep people from Christ. So he says, he repudiates them, verse 8, so that he can experience union with Christ, verses 8 and 9, 
And then that leads to the grand goal of communion with Christ in verses 10 and 11. So let's look at each of these in turn. Let's start with this repudiation idea. Paul says here that he has suffered the loss of all things. This is getting at the idea that he has, you know, it's kind of like a, a ship that's wrecked and it's lost all its cargo. It's like it's, it's, he suffered, they, they suffered a loss, you know. So Paul's saying he's, he's willingly done this. He's, he's given up and suffered, like he's trashed. I say, I'm saying trashed here. He's trashed all of these things he used to depend on. And so repudiation, what I mean by that, is a rejection of reliance upon ourselves. Okay? A rejection of reliance upon ourselves. An active rejection of it. I'm not going to do this. And so when Paul says that he suffered the loss of all things, he means that he is, he is refusing to identify now with all his previous boasts with his previous badges, with his medals of honor in Judaism, he's refusing to identify with that. And it's like the captain of a ship, a ship that's filled with precious cargo, and he sees their value and he's kind of proud of it until he realizes the ship is sinking. All of a sudden, with that new information, what happens to the cargo? Is it valuable anymore? It's not. What has to happen to it? It's got to be tossed. The valuable cargo has become a danger. It's an extra weight. It could cause them to drown faster, so it's got to go. And that's the idea here. Our good works outside of Christ cannot be trusted. They can't be relied upon for anything. And in fact, they are leading us to the bottom of the ocean of God's judgment. And in fact, because of this realization, he's willing to lose them. He says he counts them as rubbish, right? That's a nice way of saying it. This is kind of a vulgar expression, just like we saw earlier about him calling them dogs and evildoers and mutilators. He's saying all these badges, all these things that these Judaizers boast in, that Paul used to boast in, they're like garbage. They're not worth saving. They are contaminated. They belong on the compost pile. That is quite a statement from a former Pharisee. But why is he so passionate? Well, because he knows that you can't depend on your works in any sense and experience the great blessing of union with Christ. Dependence on yourself is like a poison. And so you've got this pristine water of, of, you know, of, of pure water, which is the righteousness of Christ, and then you add your work to it like a drop of poison, like the Judaizers were doing, is that, a is that a glass of water with a little bit of poison? No, it's a glass of what? Poison. <laughs> it will kill you. And that's the idea. He's so passionate because works, if we depend on our works in any sense, that it forfeits us from experiencing the great blessing of union with Christ. They must be forsaken. They must be repudiated like Paul does here. So that, he says, he may gain Christ. You see that connection? This is a turning from our self-reliance to a reliance upon Christ. And when we do, we experience what 
I am calling here union. So I'm grabbing some of these verbs and bringing them together. Paul calls it here gaining Christ. Being found in Christ. And these verbs belong together. And I'm treating them together under this heading called union with Christ. And in this context here, it has to do with the reception of Christ and His pristine righteousness. Union has to do with the reception of Christ, the receiving of Him and His pristine righteousness. Gaining Christ, being found in Him. And repudiation has to come first because when our hands are empty, when we've let go of our false hopes and our defiled attempts to be righteous, we can now embrace Christ and receive all His perfect righteousness. You'll notice that Paul goes on in this verse to really spread out the details of this righteousness. He wants us to understand it. He does not want us to miss the glory of what we've received. So let's look at this. He describes it in a number of ways here. Notice initially he tells us that he tells us what it's not. Okay? He says it's not a righteousness of my own from the law. You see that? Literally, it's not a me righteousness. It's not a, a righteousness that comes from my obedience to the law. That righteousness is contaminated. And it's contaminated even from someone as zealous as Paul, who could say that according to the law, he was blameless. It's contaminated. The righteousness that we possess is of a far different and much more glorious quality. So where does it come from? Well, it's not from the law, but instead it is from God. Do you see that in the text? It's it's a righteousness from God. Verse 9. Paul is saying the origin, the origin of our righteousness is divine and not human. It comes from God, not the law. It's His very righteousness, again, of a far superior quality than our own contaminated efforts. But how does this righteousness come from God to sinful men when we did not earn it in any sense? How can He just give it to an unrighteous people so freely? Well, that would make God unjust. But Paul tells us in the next phrase, and I'm translating it literally, he says it's through the faith of Christ. Okay? Your translations probably say through faith in Christ. Right? I think most English versions have that. I think there's two English versions that translate it the way I'm about to tell you. Now, hang with me here. That's a legitimate translation. The way your translation has it, through faith in Christ. But I think it's better in this context. I think it's slightly more natural, even grammatically, to translate this as through the faithfulness of Christ. Through the faithfulness of Christ. Now, to be fair, this phrase can go either way. And I think Paul's accenting here Christ's faithfulness to the covenant. Now, why would I say that? Why am I spelling that out here? 
Because there is tremendous encouragement in this little phrase. The reason God can freely give us His very own pristine righteousness is because Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, earned it for us. This is the glory of the Gospel. He was the one and only completely faithful covenant partner. Adam failed. Noah failed. Abraham failed. Israel failed. The Davidic kings failed. None of these covenant partners fully secured the blessings of the covenant by their obedience, by their faithfulness. None of them could reverse the curse and bring God's blessing back to the nations. They couldn't do that because they weren't representatively faithful. But Jesus did. His perfect life, His life of immaculate faithfulness earned what we could not earn. He was the truly obedient human. And He lived on our behalf. And that's not all. He was also faithful unto death. In other words, His obedience includes His obedience in death. And Paul has already talked about this back in chapter 2, remember? He became obedient unto the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul says. So you hear that. Christ's obedience, this category of His faithfulness, includes His faithfulness unto death. So what does that mean for us? It means that not only did He live for us and secure the righteous, secure all the blessings of the covenant, but He also died for us. And that means He endured all of the punishments of the covenant for covenant unfaithfulness. All of the covenant curses fell on Him. God poured out all of His punishment for our sin on His faithful Son. And in that way, Christ alone has fulfilled the law of Moses in both the perfect faithfulness and in righteous life and in absorbing all of the wrath of God for the covenant curses that Deuteronomy spelled out. So let's bring this together. How was our righteousness secured? It was through the faithfulness of the Son of God. He earned it for us. And that means for all who have it, you have the very record of a perfectly obedient son. The perfectly faithful covenant partner's record is yours. That's your record now. He earned it by His faithfulness and it is securely yours. But you might be saying, how do, we, how do we get access to that? Remember those empty hands you have? Because you're not coming with anything? You grasp it by faith, that's what Paul says. 
It is yours for the taking. This promise is extended to you free of charge to all who would repudiate their previous pride and yield to the Son. So Paul says here, ESV says, this righteousness depends on faith. You see that there? It depends on faith. End of verse 9. Meaning, this righteousness comes to us by faith, as we, we trust that God means what He says when He promises this to us. We take Him at His word that this has been achieved. That He's extending it to you. Like the song says, if you feel vile, there's no caveats. You're going to repudiate your former gains? That's the only caveat, to admit that your hands are empty and to receive it by faith. We take him at his word and we rejoice in this unspeakable gift. And that is union with Christ. We gain access to him. We're clothed with his pristine righteousness. And this is an almost unspeakable privilege. But do you know that Paul's not through? Union with Christ is the foundation to another unspeakable privilege. It is the restoration of an intimate, transformative, Enduring and life-giving relationship with the risen Christ. He wants us to know Him and to be changed now. It's all about knowing Him. That is the grand goal of everything being rescued to know him. So we call it communion. Paul's heartbeat, the mission of his life, was not to plant churches. He's in jail. Sorry this hit me hard this week. It was to know the Son. That was it. It reminded me of a story that I heard from G.I. Packer, who interviewed Martin Lloyd-Jones at the end of his life, and I'm probably going to get the details wrong. But he asked Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher, author, did so many things. End of his life, something had happened to him, and he couldn't do any of the ministry anymore. He was just kind of shut in his hospital room or whatever. Packer comes in, he's like, is this not hard? Are you not depressed that you can't, like, do your ministry anymore? And he said he didn't even hesitate. And he's like, no, why would I be depressed? That's not the point of my life. The point of my life is to know Christ. And I'm knowing him now. Paul's heartbeat, the mission of his life was to know the risen Christ. 
He's talking about an intimate, life-giving relationship with the Son. That's what he says here in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. May share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So that's what he means initially when he says that the goal is to know him. That's where he starts. You see that? Goal is to know him. He says other things, but he starts with him. His goal is to know Jesus, pure and simple. Not to know about him, although that is crucial. It is to know him personally and intimately. To hear his voice in scripture. To respond to him in prayer. To experience the living Christ. Sometimes we feel his presence with unspeakable joy. Most of the time we don't. But he is there with you nonetheless. He saved you. He's bound you to himself. He walks beside you in your day. He hears your innermost thoughts. He knows your deepest burdens. He rejoices with your most profound moments of happiness. And it was Paul's goal to experience more of Christ and to know Him. And that's our goal too. And it fuels our desire to keep repudiating all forms of self-righteousness. All forms of pride. All instances of self-reliance. All temptations to self-gratification. Why do we repudiate them? To know Him know him more. And you can be sure that knowing Christ also means knowing his transforming power. So Paul says next. He says to know him and the power of his resurrection. Anyone who truly knows Christ is going to be changing. It might be slowly, but transformation will happen Because to know Christ is to trust Him. Paul says next that knowing Christ involves knowing also the power of His resurrection. And he could be talking about our final resurrection. Like the resurrection from the dead. But, since he's going to to mention that at the end in verse 11, and since this is the first thing he says after knowing Christ here, to know the power of His resurrection, I think it's better understood He's talking about our present transformation. His point is that when we come into union with Christ, when we commune with Him, we have access to His resurrection power. Power over sin. Power to cultivate likeness to Christ. The same faith that brings us into union with Christ is the same faith that trusts His promises. It's the same faith that heeds His commands. And Christ's very resurrection power is available to us as we commune with Him. And that means then, if we're not changing, if we're not, if we're not changing, then we're not actually communing with Christ. Okay? You tracking that? So if, if people claim to have all these experiences of Jesus, right? They claim that, but they are not growing Their lives aren't marked by a growing measure of holiness, a growing humility, a growing love for the church. Then they are not communing with Christ like they think. 
Because according to Paul here, to know Him is to know His resurrection power. But Paul keeps going. Not only does he want us to know Christ's person, His power, but he also wants us to know or experience his, the fellowship and His sufferings, he says. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and, literally, and the fellowship of His sufferings. So what is he talking about here? What does he mean? Well, Paul understands the great mystery. He understands that as we suffer, as we undergo hardship in this life as Christians, as we experience trials, we are able to grow in our fellowship with Christ. We're able to commune with Christ more fully. Just think through it. What do trials do? They purge our wrong motives. Trials strengthen our faith. Trials give us a small taste of what Christ suffered for us. Trials push us to depend more fully on Christ. We can keep going. Paul knows all this. And he understands that communion with Christ is also going to involve growing in the fellowship of his suffering. And finally, notice where all this culminates for Paul. It culminates in the physical resurrection from the dead. Verse 11. He says he's he's knowing Christ that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Where all this is going for Paul is resurrection. Paul wants to arrive there. He wants to arrive in a resurrected body, in a glorified new creation, And as he's going to say later in this chapter, our resurrection is certain. We're waiting for Christ from heaven. He's going to raise us from the dead. But do you know what that means? It means that greater communion with the risen Christ is on the way. Our resurrection is not the end of this communion. It is the beginning. It continues it. Our resurrection is the beginning of a new existence in a new creation with a new capacity for relationship with Jesus and with His people. And that's where Paul ends this passage. That's where he's headed. So, as we kind of wrap this thing up tonight, this is the great exchange. And Paul is taking us through this from his own life, detailing out what's happened to him, what's motivating him, what he wants, so that we will adopt the same way of thinking. We're going to work out more of these implications next time because he's going to talk about how we pursue this mindset in the next paragraph. But I want to end tonight just asking the question, has this great exchange happened for you? Have you truly repudiated your own good works? Have you forsaken your own attempts to be made right with God? Or is that how your relationship with Him, that's what your relationship with Him is based on, is your attempts? Because you can't have both. And tonight, 
Christ has made himself crystal clear. He wants you to embrace him and him alone and to taste that transforming reality of union with him. Or maybe you're in the second category. I think we all are at some level of needing to learn to relate to God on this basis alone. Maybe you started there, started out freely rejoicing in Christ, heard the gospel, and came out of a life of sin or hypocrisy or whatever. It was super clear to you in that moment, but now you've, you've drifted back into that legal, those legalistic tendencies of basing your relationship on your own performance. So if that's you, rest tonight. Yeah, we'll talk about obedience and all that stuff, but tonight, rest. Rest in the work of your Savior that he's already, he's already completed for you. You can't add to it or take away from it. God loves you because he's placed you in his Son. So in the weeks to come, we're going to talk more about this. And Paul's going to help us see that knowing Christ is progressive. It's never perfect in this life. We'll look more at that in the coming weeks. But for now, I just want you to behold the glory, like he said, the glory of Jesus. That's why Christians glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, tremendous gift. We pray that your spirit would help us to understand how secure we are in your son. That he would help us rest and rejoice in Christ alone to identify any ways that we, we doubt you and your promises to repudiate those doubts and to learn to tonight and in the days to come to live by faith what he's done so that as we as we work as we seek to obey as we lay our lives down for the good of others and and all of these things they'll be motivated um, from love to you and not any kind of fear or anxiety or any attempt to um, earn your favor. And we ask that you do that now in the name of your Son. Amen.